0: I said in the beginning of my slavery video that I hadn't met any good white people, and my definition of good is that you understand that this is a question of power, that you'll be willing to give up some power. That's my definition of good white people, and I haven't met any
1: like that. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, um, a podcast where we talk about classical music and other things. (laughs) I don't know. I'm still working on that. I'm still working on this new tagline, so we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Um, I want to, you know, we've been starting out these opuses with some um, announcements. So first and foremost, I want to shout out Dell for cooking a a delicious uh, beef bourguignon. I'm feeling real cozy right now.
2: Yeah, we had to, we almost had to make a pot of coffee to.
1: I just want to fend off the food coma um, There's been a lot of um, uh, new energy and new uh, listeners and, and, and all that So um, I want to shout out all the new listeners If, if you're checking out uh, Triloquy for the first time today uh, If if uh, recently you've been uh, checking us out for the first time um, Thanks, I really appreciate that It's exciting that folks are uh, starting to really pay attention to what we're doing And drop us a line We'd
2: love to hear what your thoughts on the podcast are You know, the, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything yeah.
1: I want to say hello and give a shout out once again. One of many shout outs uh, to uh, Katie and Delaney over at Classically Black. They gave me Scott. They gave me Black Excellence um, last week, and I'm really uh, appreciative to that. They did a uh, gave gave me a great honor. Were,
2: Were you surprised?
1: Well, um, I mean, maybe not surprised, but uh, just thankful, you know. And and I really appreciate uh, what they're doing. Uh, if you don't know uh, the podcast, classically black, uh, definitely um, go check that out. You know, just just so much fun. Just a a nice way to give a laugh or two, you know, and when when you're feeling down and you want to connect it with a bit of classical music.
2: I was going to bring them up in the strike a chord movement. Also, so, also yeah. we'll be talking about them a we'll little be, later. We'll be talking about
1: it. um I want to um, shout out uh, James Napoli. So he wrote a uh, an article about me and about Triloquy for uh, Rewire, uh, as we record this right now, actually, Scott. It's on the uh, homepage of PBS.org, so... Again, finally famous. Yeah. Th- th- congratulations on arriving in print. <laughs> uh, and mm. then uh, for, for the end of my little announcements here, before we get into the uh, first movement, I want to shout out uh, two former Triloquy guests, uh, Damian Strange, for inviting me on his uh, Juneteenth uh, panel for... Um, the American Composers Forum. I had a great time uh, doing that, and thank you for everyone who participated in that. And also, um, Scott, our very own uh, Megan Oglesby, for um, the work uh, we've been doing together on um, uh, on some uh, things for Triloquy, but also um, uh, the names I gave her for her. Uh, My Name Is Series for mm-hmm. Performance Today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Performance Today is doing some really great things, and uh, yeah, so shout out to both of them. And again, Uh, Shout out to the new listeners and uh, for the returning listeners. Great to see you back here as well. Um, You have been getting
2: a lot of extra press recently, though. Talk about some of the other interviews that you've sat in on, uh, some of the profiles that have been done. You said that the uh, article that was supposed to be out yesterday in the Star Tribune was moved to a a place where it would get a little more attention.
1: Yeah, we're, yeah. Um, shout out to uh, Jenna Ross and and those folks over at the Star Tribune here in the Twin Cities. Uh, they say they're gonna uh, push that newspaper uh, thing forward, so we have a bit more of a prominent spot. So yeah, Scott, look, it's 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 really great that um, you know we're we're able to to share what we've spent so much time on with more people. I'm excited. I'm really excited. Me too, man. All right, Scott. So um, one thing I wanted to, uh, as we check our accidentals here, one thing I wanted to get um, your updated uh, response to um, was the uh, Zach Wolf article where he talks about, um, you know, what did what did he say? The the uh, the it was what some- the world finally needs.
2: Yeah, it was uh, something to the effect of. Uh, by the way, the title has been kept the same. The Sheku Effect: A Classical Music Star Rises. But his lead in the first tweet was something to the effect of, hey, in this guy, Sheku, we have something that classical music has long needed, a black headliner. To which the Twitter classical realm... Came and got him. Collectively.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Does what Twitter um, does. The internet is fast. Went
2: and found him. Right. Now, he changed... I never
1: added him. To be fair, Mm -hmm. I never added him. So I wasn't a part of the real swarm.
2: No, 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 no. Me neither. And... Um, he did change the lead. Would you like to hear the updated lead? Let's hear it. <laughs> the young cellist, Sheku Mason is bursting to the forefront of a field distressingly low on headliners of color. So mm-hmm. he
1: just said it fancier. He said it well, with more it was, words. <laughs> it, was like,
2: it was like, well, part, part of that's right, and I can see how, you know, nice try. Turn around and go back again, though. That's well, I mean, still
1: not accurate. I mean so you know uh, maybe that was a part of your triloquy last week or you know we're, it we're was put, We're putting in the accident we're putting it in the accidentals this time around but <laughs> um, but listen a better fit. but listen um, for, for what, what do you say to the person Scott who who might say, well, what was wrong with it to begin with what, what's wrong with saying that this is what classical music has finally needed a, a black headliner or whatever he said a headliner of color because there are plenty because of they he- exist. headliners of color <laughs> if you would look around right and um,
2: you know like we went through the list you know um, uh, you, let's let's forget the heritage right of New York opera alone. And and the names that have come across those stages there, and that's what he's supposed to be as an opera guy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just the, the the fact that there's a, a whole generation of players that I, I, that are not being included here that have uh, been uh, in, involved in the foundation of this music, and they were black. So what did you? Um... It just seems it
1: it seems um, tone deaf. But, and, and because of the tone deafness of um, the the headliner and, and and what you've told me, I, I didn't really spend much time looking at it, but, but did you read the article itself? Yep. well, what, what did you think of what he had to say? Um, again, it's it was this
2: story about this uh, fairy tale meteoric rise. Uh, even some of the other people that were quoted in here, I sat thinking, Maestro Alsup, did you really want to have said that sentence that way? Again, you know, you could kind of feel yeah. the sentiment that they were going for, but the way they said it comes across as uninformed. And so that's why I want to take this time to say, white people, if you are writing things like this, if, you know, this is a quagmire, everybody uh, realizes that there's a there's a lot of opportunities for you to step on your own pork, here so (laughs) what i would say is read it out loud first before you send that's all i'm saying read it out loud does it feel good in your mouth
1: but but (laughs) but there also should have been somebody black in the room like can we just name i mean i mean come on like you know even, um, uh, uh, you know, w- w- when I say the word black, I'll just go ahead and, you know, make sure we're on the same page. I'm thinking of a black American, but mm-hmm. um, but but uh, uh, an Afro-English person, you know, or, or a black person, How however sure. they identify, you know, like th- one of those people should have been in the room just to kind of, you know, give a little bit of perspective. It- it's weird for, for me to think about a room full of white people. Uh, th- oh, wait, this is the New York Times. So, yeah, it was American. So, yeah. uh, you know, a-, a room full of white people. Talking about a black cellist, and and when you think about classical music and and the and the type of music specifically that Sheku Kani Mason has, you know, risen to fame playing, you know, I mean, let's just call it what it is. It's not like you know, uh, they're they're praising his his Florence Price sonata, you know, they're they're talking about his Haydn and his Bach, right? Sure. Which which it is what it is. Maybe that's another conversation, but there there needed to have been somebody black in the room. I mean, like like I said, adding a sharp to this one, this is a double. sharp. This week, <laughs> so say it out loud first, gang. Um, so, um, and so, I, I, and I think you mentioned that you um, read something else uh, uh, this week, uh, right? Um, something from Jennifer Coe. You said the violinist,
2: right? Jennifer Coe gave a keynote address for the Institute of Musical Research. And she points out that musicians who play canonical composers are accumulating greater wealth, while those who insist
1: on advocating for underrepresented composers take the economic hit. Now, we just got done talking about Sheku Kani Mason, Mm -hmm. all right? So let's apply what Jennifer Coe is saying there um, to Sheku and why you know the 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 issue this this issue of Zach Wolf's byline is problematic. You have Sheku, you know, uh, uh, getting worldwide fame playing f- directly from the canon, while there are so many other musicians of color who are dedicated to you know uh, music from the diaspora. And I can't think of a cellist off the top of my head, but um, you've uh, aired on the radio recordings by William Chapman Yahoo right? That pianist. You know, he is a black pianist who has really dedicated himself to music by black composers. And he is not a name like Sheku is, you know, and I think there's something to what Jennifer Coe is saying. You know, folks are we we still live in a world where if you want to rise to fame in classical music, you have to do it with you know these same old Beethoven's and Bach's and Mozart. That's and what that.
2: that's what had me thinking. What is it going to take to create the um, America's Got Talent, the um, top forty radio version of this? How are we going to shift into? Uh, a position where you can make a whole bunch of money by bringing out
1: something new this is- rather than playing the Elgar or... But let's, but, but, but let's keep it trill here. Um, Jennifer Coe, is a part of that, right? I mean, I can't. I, I know that we air. I've aired her recordings, I, but I can't remember. Is it the Beethoven's and the Mozart's that you know she has used to to get to where she is as well? And and I'm not saying that you know she's wrong for calling it out or she can't. You know, I, I'm look, listen, no shade, Jennifer Coe, but let. But you know, who is she a champion of? Is
2: what you're asking? Yeah. Who, what what current or or, or, re- or more recent composer or is she
1: or? calling the issue out? Um, recognizing that, you know, she's been a part of it as well, you know, uh, mm. rising to fame using or, or understanding that, you know, uh, with her managers telling her to record this or, you know, I, I don't I don't know, Jennifer. I, I'm just I'm extrapolating.
2: Well, extrapolating here, here, let me uh, let me point you on Twitter to the Institute of Musical Research on their page. They have an archive, evidently, so you can check it out.
1: OK, well, um, yeah, we'll um well, uh, if if you want to uh, learn more, first of all, Jennifer Coe, you know, is real dope on the violin. I, mm-hmm. I love uh, playing her stuff, but uh, definitely uh, just look up what Jennifer Coe had to say and, and think about that. I, I actually think that's interesting how, you know, the, the Sheku Mason, you know, and then what Jennifer Coe is saying about, you know, uh, only really being able to find success with, with, within the canon. You know, it, it, again, it, it just, w- what we say all the time, it speaks to, you know, uh, normalizing more of this music as often as we can. And that's the importance, Mm. I feel, in making sure it gets over the radio, because if folks are hearing it, if if their oral definition of this so-called classical music evolves, so can ways in which people can be successful in it, you know, as performers.
2: Sure. Did you uh, have a sharp, a flat, or a natural this week?
1: Oh, well... um Well, first and foremost, um, I'm going to put a little natural um, on something. So last weekend, and we're going to get into... Uh, a response from the Institute for Composer Diversity. You know, we kind of talked about that last week. Mm -hmm. Um, I mentioned um, Elizabeth A. Baker, new uh, Renaissance artist. Um, I actually did reach out to her for a comment on uh, everything that's uh, been going on. If you need to catch up, just go back to the last opus of Triloquy. Um, uh, She did uh, decline my request for a comment, uh, but she did let me know that uh, she does not use um, gendered honorifics, so let's put a little natural next to the uh, miss that we put next to uh, her name last week. Okay. So, um, uh, but, uh, you know, you actually uh, did—you uh, were able to get a response um, from Rob Deemer, who heads the Institute for Composer Diversity, right? That's right. Now, um, at the beginning of this opus— um, uh, we heard words from uh, Sister Solja you know, concerning so-called good white people, and I think it's a very uh, provocative statement she made about, you know, what that means to her, how she defines that, and one of the things she talked about in that, Scott, was... Uh, what we talk about here is the secession of power, you know, stepping down and allowing a person of color um, in your stead to um, you know run things. and And that's something mm-hmm. that's actually come up when it comes to the Institute for Composer Diversity. You know, Rob Deemer, this you know, white male, Um, uh, running this database that's supposed to um, center the work of uh, composers and music creators of color um, uh, and also uh, women uh, creators and artists, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think you told me that uh, you were able to ask him specifically that question about, you know, stepping down.
0: What are my reactions? So... Uh, this particular, this particular adventure was not, uh, foreseen. Uh, I didn't, I didn't expect it, but at the same time, it's not the first time that it's happened and it's actually happened a number of times, even way, way back at the very beginning. Um, you know, I wrote a new music box article in, in early 2018 when I had just come out with the spreadsheet of the women composers database. Uh, and even then there were calls of like, why is this guy doing this thing for women composers? And I, I wrote in this article for new music box. I said, those of us who do have time or resources or both have an obligation to do what we can in whatever way we can to make things better for our entire community. And because I'm in a position of privilege, uh, due to who I am, Uh, as well as my place in the musical community um, I have used and will continue to use my position of privilege uh, to spend as much time and energy as I can to make things better in the best way possible. Um, I would also point out, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but ICD is a primarily a volunteer endeavor. Our admin team have been provided stipends for their work after the fact through their through the support of fundraising campaigns which have been awesome but other than that we receive no funds from the state university of new york at fredonia where we're affiliated i myself have not taken any stipends for my work and if i get a fee for speaking somewhere uh, which has happened a few times uh, in the last few months um that fee goes back into icd um I should also point out that I haven't composed any music of my own in almost a year and a half. And I haven't taken a commission since I started ICD. I know my work uh, with ICD is connecting me with conductors and musicians and, and folks from, you know, many different ensembles all over the world. Um, but those connections are geared towards them increasing performances from underrepresented composers, not my own work. So, I want to make that clear. Uh, let's see. There's also the perception. I, I I have heard that there is a perception by some that I hold a position of power as the director of the institute. And I would say that the only power I hold is to really determine how and where the institute put its focus. I can't tell anyone what to do. Um, and and I know that that uh some might prefer us to focus on on certain things over others maybe focus on a particular demographic group or or do things differently um but the concept uh that i came up with many you know pretty much almost from the start of providing resources from a wide contingent of uh, demographic groups kind of a a big tent idea um, that that these groups have been underrepresented in music I feel is a good one and I think is a direction in which we'll continue. Uh, and then finally, I should point out that all of our resources, the databases, the analysis is free. Uh, no one has to pay a thing and uh, they're avail- it's available to the public to not only use, but also to download as well. You can You can go and download the entire Composer Diversity Database uh, and then have at it if if you so choose. I hope others uh, would join us or other organizations. And there are many organizations out there that are that are working towards similar goals. And the last thing I want is for um, for my particular project to uh, you know monopolize or feel like there's no other room for folks to be able to do it. I think if if anything, I just want to be able to create tools that those groups and others can use to diversify repertoire uh, across the board. And uh, if if, if the, those resources can be a useful tool, um, then I will consider this project a success.
1: So he's not going to um, step down, but, you know, ha- has made um, a-, a lot of, you know, other changes. W- what do you think about uh, that response?
2: You know, the thing is, is that I feel that in some ways I'm in a in a similar boat in that, you know, you've said you have people asking, what am I doing here on this podcast, you know? Um, that's a great question, and I'm thinking about it all the time, and I don't envy the position that he's in, and he said that this isn't the first time,
1: and he was expecting it, too so I mean, but, but you know as as this conversation applies to triloquy, um who's in charge here? <laughs> go ahead no, but I mean and, and we can joke about it, but you know let's let let's just be real, you know at the end of the day, you know, I take the responsibility of of the buck stopping with me, and I think that's a responsibility that I have to take in some of the you know conversations we have here and some of the things we um we do and and let's face it, Scott. It's also not lost on me that if if uh, the cancel police does come, it's it's me. You know, the, I, the 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 police, the digital police, will be coming after me. Do you think so? I think so. I mean, it it, it all. I don't know. I take full responsibility, and it's not like again. You are I, like I'm working for you, you know, like as as the black person here on staff at Triloquy, you know, there, there are just certain things that I'm not going to let fly. And, you know, sure, I, sure. And, and and let's just be real. I'm, I'm the Beyonce of this. OK, you ain't lying. You ain't lying. <laughs> you ain't lying. Uh, OK, so anyway, um, uh, again, uh, I do hope that everyone uh, listening will go and check out. Um, the music of Elizabeth A Baker. Um, I have I really do stand by Scott what Rob is doing with the Institute of Composer Diversity because, you know, again, once a week, twice a week, I'm always hearing from that person who, for goodness sake, had never even heard the name William Grant still, you know. Sure. So there, there, there's so much work we uh, have to do when it comes to normalizing the idea of the black composer, the black music creative. And I think um, things like the Institute for Composer Diversity um, work to that. Now, I will say this. I do think there needs to be a person of color, ple- preferably a black woman, closer to the top. I, that 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 is what I would like to see. I think that a lot of the missteps would go away if one of the main decision makers, m- maybe even the person all the way at the top, were a black person or, or at least a person of color. But So you know, now,
2: now we're back to the lead on the Sheku effect. <laughs> well, what do you <laughs> have, mean? Have,
1: have a black person in the room. Well, I mean, exactly. Exactly. You know, because it just it just lowers the the chance, And and, and again, not that the black person is the representative, you know, just speaks for everything. But, you know, there is a a lower likelihood of some of some nonsense slipping through the cracks. Mm -hmm. Okay. well, I'm I'm looking here. I think that's all of my accidentals. Do you have any more accidentals? Any more news from this? No, I
2: I was waiting for you to have one of each again. So I thought I'd better, you know, go light.
1: Oh, okay well all right well let, let's take a little bit of a breather and we'll get into a uh, movement two where we uh, talk about what uh, struck a chord all right movement two strike a chord so um, we're gonna talk about uh, a symphony by uh, John Corleano um, uh, here in a bit um, that kind of ties in, you know, uh, uh, Pride Month specifically and, and with the guest uh, that we have today, Mr. Marvell Terry. Um, but I wanted to just very, very briefly, Scott, cover something that has, has kind of been across um, the, the music conversations in general. So there's this rapper um, named J. Cole, and he put out um, a, a, a song, Snow on the Bluff, in which he's sort of responding, you know, and I can say allegedly whatever, but I think by this point, the conversation has evolved enough he is responding to a woman uh, also a rapper who goes by um, no name of uh, the, the name of no name and in the song, J. Cole is basically talking about how um, she uh, called, um, he, he feels like that she called him out for not being out in the streets when it comes to all of the protests and the response to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all these other victims of police brutality. You know, we these rappers preach about, you know, uh, these things, rap about these things, but don't necessarily do the things, you know. So she went sure. off about that on Twitter. J Cole felt like he was, uh, she was talking to him, and put out this song in which you know he's saying that you know he doesn't like um, her tone, and you know you don't have to try to belittle me when you're um, you know uh, calling me out and trying to blah blah blah. So of course that was a whole drama, and and, and No Name responded anyway. The only reason I'm bringing it up here, uh, Scott, is because something that uh, you've talked about a lot is making those mistakes and being called out, and you know. For for me, and and I know you've gotten the opportunity to kind of listen to the song and read the lyrics, but you know a lot of people are are, are calling out uh, misogyny here. Sure. And, um, and and I wonder what would uh, sort of be your reaction to. Um, you know, your version of this situation, you know, uh, feeling like you're doing the right thing and, and being called out in a way that isn't comfortable to you, maybe even in a pointed way, you know, let's say uh, a woman yells at you for, for your uh, for your views, you know, do, do you feel like you would be obliged to um, publicly respond uh, specifically by saying that a woman's tone has, uh, has bothered you? Good God, A, a woman no. needs to watch her tone. You Good know? Lord, no read the room man <laughs> that's been the phrase i've heard that phrase on so many podcasts and Have so it? many conversations read the room that's kind of the that's kind of the theme of these past 30 days or so that's what i'm saying that's what i'm that's all i'm
2: saying and i uh, remember how i talked about when i first started listening to it in the 80s and 90s how the vibe was different yeah okay so it seems like we've progressed to this point that I just don't
1: I just don't understand it I mean there I is a, see it. there is a lot of beefs in in, in hip-hop these days and, and again I don't want to spend too much time here but I just thought it was an interesting yeah uh, it was interesting how like music this piece of music you know by Jay Cole snow on the Bluff um has sort of sort of came into the larger conversation the side of it that I thought was intriguing was um hip-hop has always seen Jay Cole as one of these you know hip-hop saints you know, one of um, the, the wise men of hip hop. Mm-hmm. And uh, for him in this song to admit that, you know, he's not smart like that. He doesn't read like that. He's just, you know, out here rapping and, and sometimes he's going to say the wrong things. It kind of uh, got me into uh, thinking about that idea of uh, imposter syndrome, you know, uh, yeah, be, being propped up as this thing. And, you know, all, as, as the bit of press that I personally get rises up, I can't help but to think about that sometimes times. I mean I definitely do my fair share of reading and making sure that I stay up on everything, but I don't consider myself some sort of like, you know, Aristotle of of, of racial equity and classical music and and, and and it's hard for me to, you know, um, not fall into the hole of feeling like, you know, do Am I putting on? do am I someone that they don't think I am? or you, you know you know I,
2: I do, I see what you're saying, but at the same time, you don't go after people personally.
1: Not all the time.
3: Come on now, you're nicer than that. <laughs> sure, you don't,
1: sure. You don't do that, though. No, I don't. And, and certainly I, I would never tell a woman or, or anyone to watch their tone. I oh, mean, good Lord, no. Th- there have been, look, I'll, I'll, I'll admit there have been times when um, women have gotten me together on something I've said. Uh, 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 More often than not, in my case. And, and, and I take it, you know, and, and sometimes my feelings be hurt, but... That, that means I'm going to actually think about what happened. You I know? think so, too. Um, so, yeah, um, if you, I don't know. If you're interested in this uh, bit of drama, go, go look up the <laughs> song uh, Snow on the Bluff by uh, J. Cole. I, I think it's an alright song. I actually originally, Scott, wanted you to listen to it because I thought the uh, guitar was kind of cool. It is kind of like the a bluesy sort of, you know. But
2: then that led me to a movie trailer, too. Oh, did it? So
1: Oh, oh a movie called Snow on the Bluff? Right. I wonder if they're talking about actual snow.
2: It didn't look like
1: it. It looked looked like Something else. It it looked like a a drug dealer they let get in
2: their back seat for some strange reason. (laughs) Um, All
1: right. Yeah, before we get into this, uh, uh, Coriolanus. Oh, my goodness. Coriolanus? Okay, for real. Let's put some respect on the man's name. Because I always said Corigliano, but you were correcting me. Corleano. Corigliano. Corigliano. So, anyway, before we get into his symphony, you actually had uh, some interesting music that you said struck a chord with you.
2: There's a new release from a musical artist named Lichens, L-I-C-H-E-N-S, which is the stage slash performance name of Robert A. K. Aubrey Lowe. And what he does is, uh, I, that, that's the thing, is that I do a lot of active listening with his work because I'm sitting there wondering, how is he doing that? How is he getting that? Because he, he plays guitar, but there's also a certain aspect of the composition that comes from the
1: gear. I wonder if we yeah. can I wonder if we can get a sample of the kind of the vibe he gives.
2: Let's put it in. So let's say right now, out of the gate, you know, the first thing, he, he reminds me of like a modern impressionist. Yeah. So Katie and Delaney over at Classically Black.
1: <laughs> they already mad. They are already <laughs> mad. They're, they would, they, ladies... You would hate this guy, but check it out anyway. I think it's I think it's vibey. I think it's really vibey. Great dinner music, you know. And
2: there's a, there's a there's an aspect of the, you know his um his pieces are largely improvis improvisatory. Yeah. So uh, I'm impressed at the fact that. You know, anybody who listens to his music and goes, Oh, well, my kid could do that. Well, no, not really, because this is a man who has learned to play his gear as an instrument. And there's, you know, he's got a way with it. And um, you can't, not everybody can do it. Um, So the fact that these compositions that you hear are basically hitting record and he does it. I think that speaks to his uh, musicianship and his composition skills.
1: You know, um, I've been um, doing some uh, interviews uh, with some teenagers for the American Composers Forum. Um, They have a, a, a program called Next Notes in which they award high school composers, and a number of them... Um, have been uh, getting into the world of improvisatory music and Mm -hmm. improvisation. I I find um, every time I'm uh, on the radio and I have like a like I have a a piano fantasy or something, you know, I I basically talk about how that's music written in the style of improvisation, you know. So all the way from the earliest times of this uh, so-called classical music all the way up to um, uh, these sort of compositions, you know, that spirit of improvisation just kind of going with the flow um, has survived, yeah. and, um, and and it's something because that's how everything else is, right? I mean, in life, we just kind of go with the flow. Sometimes in cooking, you're like, okay, well, let's see what happens. See what happens and, when I add and, this. And other, and, and, other, and other things with other people, well, let's just see how this goes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you, you know, I I, I really love – I'm falling more and more in love with, you know, just the idea of improvisation, especially as it applies to music. So um, I appreciate your getting me on to um, – to uh, the, To this artist and uh, lichens and especially for you know uh black music appreciation month you know support your black artists actually go out and and buy this music you know don't just rip it or whatever like we did here no we buy we pay for the music we do <laughs> uh, okay so um, so. Uh, We've done a great job, I think, of sort of acknowledging um, Black Music Appreciation Month. But, you know, Scott, as a member of the queer community, I also don't want to completely uh, pass over Pride Month. So um, today I I thought that I would uh, bring in someone who is uh, actually a specialist in AIDS and HIV prevention, you know, something that folks tend to pay a lot uh, of attention to uh, during Pride Month. And as a uh, connection, I wanted to bring in a, a piece of music Um, That directly um, addresses that So uh, John Corleano Whose name uh, we've been saying uh, uh, A contemporary composer um, For many, 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 many years You know, he refused to write a symphony You know, because he felt like That was more of a a classical, romantic thing You know, the idea of this contemporary symphony Isn't really, you know, a a thing But uh, in the uh, late 80s and early 90s He began to uh, lose a lot of his loved ones um, To age. And, you know, thinking about how he can respond, what platforms, what abilities uh, he has, you know, uh, being a composer, he decided to uh, put his aversion to a contemporary symphony to the side and actually write one. So his very first symphony um, is uh, dedicated to those uh, who fell victim uh, during the AIDS uh, crisis. And we uh, listened to um, uh, a bit of it. We'll we'll put a little bit here uh, as a bridge before we get into my conversation with Marvell. Um, but you know, we listen to the tarantella movement, yeah. and I think there's an interesting conversation to have there. So, uh, for folks who don't know, Scott, uh, a, a musical tarantella is kind of a, a folksy way to, uh, to to reference what sort of story, what what idea.
2: The idea is that you were bitten by a spider, and in order to reverse the effects of the venom, there's a a, frenet- a, a very fevered. Sort of dance that needs to be done yeah. in order to get you back to being right.
1: So, John Corleano um, subtitled this second movement of Tarantella, you know, the idea of being proverbially bitten by this proverbial bug, you know, and mm. and this dance that you're supposed to do to get rid of it, but there is no dance. And if you go and listen to the entire movement, we can't put the movement here in, in the opus, but I really encourage you to listen to that entire movement. Um, where it goes between this slow music of uncertainty and fear into these little, um, you know, uh, sequences of that really feverish dance. A fit. And a fit, yeah, really. Yeah, It's it sounds like a fit. And, you know, I think it speaks to, you know, back in those days, how, you know, um, an HIV-positive status was seen as a death sentence. You know, th- there's yeah. a lot of that darkness in this music. And
2: I was, uh, you know, when, when this fight was just starting, when the the epidemic was just uh, beginning you know it was affecting you know just like the pandemic that we have now it was touching everybody's lives right right and you know there was a there was a real sense of fear uh, around uh, starting new relationships and you know the uh, the possibilities of, um, uh, of
1: of coming in contact with it unwittingly and everything was you know, very real and, and, and you you talk about, you know, you draw that comparison uh, between then and COVID. It's actually interesting because uh, Marvell and I talk about the fact that in the work he does, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci has been a huge name for decades now. Like, you know, how how he knew how, you know, he like he, he went to this, um con- he talks about how he goes to a conference and he got to meet uh, Anthony Fauci years ago, you know, as this bastion um, in, in the world of AIDS and HIV prevention and how, you know, uh, that conversation uh, is directly related to COVID and the spread of that virus, and mm. di- you know, using different protections. You know, the the face mask for COVID. You know, the condom for AIDS and HIV, and mm-hmm. how you have to realize they're not one hundred percent, but how to be as responsible as you can. And it, it, it's really fascinating the the connections uh, you can make. So, um, I, I yeah, and I and I, I wanted to um, uh, again uh, bring up this piece of music as yet another example of. Uh, one of these compositions that, you know, doesn't always make it into the concert hall all that often. Uh, it doesn't make it onto the, the radio waves all that often. But, you know, this, this this so-called classical music, you know, relates to the world in, in a real way, in a real reactionary way. And and, and we spend so much time co- sort of overlooking it for, for the sake of the canon. You know, it's something how, um, you know, the world works and life works. I, I can remember back to um, freshman year, just somehow just finding that group of, uh, of black gays, um, you know, where we just hang out in, the, uh, in somebody's dorm room and, and, and talk shit about these men. And, right. and you were among them. So it's great for that to come, <laughs> come around full circle to, uh, to, to get to uh, commune with you here.
3: Right. I appreciate that. I, I do remember those days and I also appreciate how many of us have grown and in our queerness, in our blackness, uh, some 15, almost 10 to 15 years later to see how we have grown. And,
1: um being advocates in our respective spaces. Yeah, and you know, exploring um, that queerness and that blackness is something that you've had uh, the the opportunity to dedicate your career to. And we're definitely gonna um, get into that in honor of uh, this Pride Month. But I did wanna um, start out with a conversation of music. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, being being from, uh, you don't live in Memphis now, but being from Memphis, you know, a very uh, musical city, I'm sure you have some sort of a deep relationship with just music in in general what what is that what what are some of the the first sorts of musics you remember really being engaged by right I think um one hour a church
3: boy, and so I think part of that fabric of who I am uh- re- residing in Memphis, growing up in Memphis, definitely was around church, around gospel music around uh uh, going to, remember, I remember when the Church of God in Christ had the annual convention in Memphis, going to some of the midnight musicals at Mason Temple mm-hmm. and getting all of the friends together from the University of Memphis, uh, going to some of that and staying till 5 a.m. in the morning and then going to Waffle House. Yep. And so, <laughs> <laughs> also growing up in a city where B.B. King, uh was 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 part of the history the Stax Museum Stax mm-hmm. Records uh some of our uh ancestors recorded in that space but also the city where Elvis Presley has this mansion in Whitehaven but also to talk about some of the history and how he also looted some of black folks music and so yeah more than some
1: th- of it i'll say Right. More than some of it. <laughs> so
3: how as as a black kid growing in the city, we never took a field trip to Elvis Presley's home, uh, but we, we learned about black artists and black art in the city. And so really more so kind of that that church background, but also as I grew up learning about around the Le on area around what black folks contribution was
1: yeah. to music in this country. Yeah, and for folks who don't know, LeMoyne Owen is a, a historically black college uh, down there in Memphis. Uh, you know, when, when you mentioned, uh, you know, coming up through the church and, and engaging music in that way, like so many of us did. I wonder if um, uh, that queerness, you know, the the discovery of yourself and, and who you are um, ever uh, was at odds with that upbringing, if you had that perspective at all. I think at some point in
3: my life, I I did not grow up in a church where uh, anti-gay sermons were preached. Mm -hmm. I I will say that and also recognize that moving in in and out of spaces where black and brown queer people have been hurt by the church, I didn't grow up under that experience, but I know so many people have this relationship with the church. I did struggle with my queerness, being gay, and also uh, loving the church. I often tell people my activism and advocacy came from the Black church. Yeah, it, it, it taught me how to schedule meetings. It taught me how to get people on the phone. It taught me how to mobilize. It taught me how to count money money in Sunday school. Uh, but it also taught me that Black folks to get to a meeting to food. Yeah. And I learned that, but also on the flip side of that, my wholeness as this person that loved guys and had this same-sex attraction and the reconciliation. Uh, I'll be 35 this year. I think it takes a lifelong journey almost uh, to reprogram yourself uh, or and to, and to tell yourself that all of those identities that you have can exist in one
1: person and you can work and serve in church and have all those identities show up. Absolutely. You know, I was I'll say that, you know, I was one of those um, people who was hurt by the black church growing up. You know, I didn't have that positive experience, but, you know, growing up and understanding us uh, uh, specifically the, sp- uh, the uh, history of the spiritual and how that has a place in the black church and how that had a place, you know, in our first um, alleged freedom. Um, you know, and, and, and the spreading of, of messages in that way. That's always why I have uh, considered the spiritual America's original um, classical music, you know, something that your partner, Adrian, um, also right. affirms in his work. Yes. Um, but that definition of classical music um, is, is still sort of fringe for a lot of people. I, mm-hmm. I wonder um, what is your relationship with the idea of, of so-called classical music and, and how you've defined that over the years for yourself? Sure, sure. You mentioned uh, my partner Adrian
3: Dunn, who uh, has a project out around repurposing uh, the spirituals for lives of Black men. But to be honest, my introduction—that was my introduction to classical music within the oh, wow. last year and a half. Uh, as a as as a kid coming up through Memphis, uh, economics, I believe, played a role into getting classical music to Black and Brown kids in that city. Uh, having you know, I went elementary, middle school, and high school, that was not one time that I've experienced classical music in Memphis. And -hmm. from my understanding, we do have a, uh, there's an opera house, there's classical music, there's an orchestra in Memphis that I've never had an opportunity. Uh, While they had concerts on the Mississippi River, I remember the commercials, I remember the advertisement, but as a young kid growing up in that city, never having the opportunity to experience classical music. Let me tell you, my first experience in classical music, Please. right, was going to Temple Deliverance Church of God in Christ, Bountiful Blessings, G. Patterson, and I saw a full orchestra playing uh, in the pit before the um, bef- before the full choir. Mm-hmm. I was amazed. You know, meeting some of my friends at the University of Memphis uh, who said that they played in the orchestra at the Temple Deliverance Church of God in Christ. And so seeing this 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 full circle moment as we talk about spirituals, uh, as we talk about classical music and as we talk about my background of the church for this actual moment that there is preaching, there is a choir, black folks music, Pentecostal music, folks falling out, and you got a big harp right here. <laughs> hey, man. And, then, and, and so I my experience with classical music has always, up until this point in my life, has been something that is very foreign to me. Uh, I felt uh, classical music was very white, to be very honest. Sure, yeah. Uh, and I felt clas- that was nothing that resonated with me as far as has the music. Uh, the lyrics, the language, um, I did not see how that resonated with me in my life. Uh, At this point, the way that I define classical music is Western uh, European approach to to something that they stole from us Mm. uh, as black folks. Uh, And so as we talk about looting again, I think it is the music uh, that white folks stole from black music and tried to make it their own. And so my experience now with classical music, I've I've had an opportunity to meet amazing black classical artists uh, to meet amazing black opera singers never in my life did I have an opportunity yeah Marion Anderson Leontine Price right I think we learn about those historic figureheads but it almost seems that There are only five people that we can name and there's a whole cluster uh, and whole spectrum of black artists that reside in the classical space. And so how do we look at challenging opera houses to ensure that they teach black and brown kids, that they um, diversify their funding efforts to ensure that young kids living in urban communities or major metropolitan cities, that that music gets to them as well?
1: Right, and you know uh, something that everyone is, uh, a lot of people anyway, are starting to explore uh, within the uh, category of so-called classical music is uh, protest and and how music can can drive protest. And I know that uh, protest music is something that uh, you have uh, had an interest in outside of of the the, the classical lens. I, I know you gave uh, Wale's new project a <laughs> shout out on your uh, on your social media. I wonder, you know, and as we transition here into uh, specifically into the work you do. I wonder if uh, protest music, uh, classical or otherwise, has um, had a role in your your career and, and, and the way you view AIDS and HIV prevention. I think I think music, protest music, uh, definitely yes,
3: has had a role in the way. I inform my protest or my activism, um, thinking about the early days of the HIV and AIDS movement. Uh, But but even more so that I have to go back to the civil rights movement and the freedom songs. Mm. And when we protest, we did chants. Um, People were singing. When you look at the March on Washington and how Harry Belafonte was present and some of the... um, uh, Mary Anderson some of those artists were very much present during their time and how what what art and music means to movements. Mm-hmm. Now we have this LGBT movement and how during the act up era, doing on Broadway, many of the singers and listening to uh, Jennifer Jennifer Holiday talk about dream girls. Yeah. And how many of the dancers, many of the actors in dream girls died over over the weekend or over a course of period of time, uh, and how music played a critical role in that. And so the way that it inform, informs my activism is when hosting rallies, hosting protests. There's impo- it is important to have artists present. Yeah. Uh, I think protest music ignites us, it informs our activism, uh, it encourages encourages us along the way. Uh, I think music is this critical thing. It is the soundtrack to our lives. Uh, when I listen to music or when I am trying to prepare something as it relates to policy around HIV and AIDS or issues around LGBTQ, I think those are the moments that we often go to music. And we go to, you know, Wale is one person that I highlighted, but Kendrick Lamar. Yeah, shout you out know. to him. <laughs> right, shout out Your to him. Pulitzer Prize winning composer. Right. composer <laughs> Kendrick Lamar, you know, yeah. the pimple butterfly. You think about Solange, A Seat at the Table. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a black trans woman, Shea Diamond, has a song called American Pie uh, that talks about the plight of, of black trans women. I think all of those... Um, all, that music speaks to what I do on a daily basis, looking at young activist groups such as BYP 100, you know, mm. that is based in Chicago. But looking at a guy named Jonathan Likes, who uh, is kind of this social activist who uses music at the protests. And I think music for me has informed it in a way uh, that puts uh, words on paper. Uh, And that is very encouraging before the actual activism. And I think when we get to the actual activism as a Black queer person, uh, I love music. uh, Yeah. and I think it is a way to mobilize my peers.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, with this being uh, Black Music Appreciation Month, you know, that's a, a conversation that's been uh, highlighted even more. Uh, but, but you know, it, it is also uh, Pride Month. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm sure this is a very busy time of the year for you. Yes. Uh, uh, talk to me a little bit um, about, um, you know, your work, what your job is and why it's important um, for you to do your job Again, from that black perspective, I, I think folks try to um, bring in uh, the, uh, the 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 queer community as a whole into some of these conversations. But just like every other aspect of the world, black folks have unique challenges. Right,
3: right, yeah. So my my work around HIV, uh, ensuring that black voices are in LGBT spaces, uh, kind of all of that that work that I've done probably over the last ten years. I actually started uh, being diagnosed with HIV in Memphis um, while being a student at the University of Memphis uh, getting sick. Uh, never really hearing about HIV really in the education system. Hearing about STDs uh, from a heterosexual perspective, but of course, there's no school teaching around uh, gay men having sex, or what is the there's no right way, but what is a um, what is a very uh, safe way uh, to have sex? What is a very um, a consensual way to have sex between two guys or those same sex relationships. And so my first experience of doing this work is one, my own diagnosis, going down to the county health department, um, getting my test results, uh, and then being informed that I have a CD4 count of two. And for many of Many of the listeners, to put that in context, a CD4 uh, measures kind of your immune system. And for me, uh, the lowest I can get is a zero. And so I was at a two. Oh, wow. and so I was very sick at that time. Uh, and I remember the social worker who talked to me with her back turned towards me and told me, do you know what that really means? And I said, no. And she said, you should be dead right now. Uh, because your cd4 is so low and so for me that began my day of activism and it also began the day that i um very early on did this dance of linking into care uh hiv care stand adherent to medications i did that dance for about two or three years because of stigma mm. because i felt uh how could this be me? You know, how could this happen to me? Uh, after that, I opened up an organization called the Red Door Foundation uh, that I started in Memphis, uh, which was to provide services for Black gay men uh, because there was not an organization ran by a Black Gay man, if we are to be uh, one of the highest statistics in the community, why aren't we in leadership roles in our communities? You know, something Mm -hmm. uh, that I I saw a need for. And so I started an organization uh, because one, black folks were not leading organizations as it relates to HIV and AIDS. And then I started a convening that lasted eight years called Saving Ourselves Symposium. I called it SOS uh, for black LGBTQ people. And we moved it across the South. Uh, being located in Memphis. We had it in Jackson, South Carolina, Birmingham, because we wanted to move it to locations where uh, normally national conferences do not go to smaller cities because of the heavy burden of finances. But I wanted to ensure that we mobilize folks in areas that have high HIV rates. And when you look at those cities, those are metropolitan cities in the south. That's Mm -hmm. Memphis. That's Jackson, Mississippi. That's New Orleans. That's Charleston. that's, That's Miami. Miami Florida Orlando Florida Those Atlanta are, yeah Atlanta how can I forget Atlanta? These are cities where Black folks live. These are cities where uh, Black folks reside. But we also look at these, these are cities where have high rates of COVID-19. Right. The complexities of, of health disparities, of HIV, of heart, dis- heart disease, hypertension, now layered with this issue of, of COVID-19. And so that is kind of how I arrived uh, doing HIV work, it is both personal for me and as well as professional uh, for me. I also created uh, a consulting group to uh, inform institutions on how to communicate to Black and Brown queer folks, far as their languaging, mm-hmm. far as their promotions, far as their advertising. Uh, and i also full-time do uh, grant making uh, through an organization in Washington, D.C. called Age United, where I met where I manage a southern
1: fund for organizations
3: where we give money to to continue to do that HIV work
1: Yeah. And, you know, when you hit on uh, the education piece, you know, that that's what I always go back to, because, you know, for 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 lack of a better phrase, you know, uh, gay men, specifically black gay men of our generation, we had to learn about our sexuality on the streets for, you know, for 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 lack of a better phrase. You know, we didn't have I won't speak for all of us, but, you know, I certainly didn't have parents that could speak to what it meant to engage sexually with with other men. And and neither did the. uh, you know, neither neither did the education systems. Right. Um, I, I, so, with that in mind, um, I'm wondering uh, if you could just lay out some of that uh, language that folks do not know. You've already talked about um, CD4. Um, what what about uh, these acronyms? AIDS, HIV. What 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 is that? Because I I think sometimes we take for granted that a lot of folks don't understand the difference between those two words, those two phrases.
3: Right. Um, so language is very important in our country, in our context, in our community. You know, I believe uh that black gay folks, uh, black queer folks uh make up a very interesting uh language and we can talk to one another in a very interesting way. Uh, but even more so when it comes to our education. I think many of us learned about sex through pornography, you know, watching porn. Uh and unfortunately, uh for some of us, we're not we we did not see you know, safer sex practices through those, through porn. And so we didn't see the guy put on the condom, if he used a condom. And you know that I, I in this moment, state that, you know, as people choices to use condoms, there are many ways of of protecting oneself. You have condoms, you have pre-exposure prophylaxis, which stands for PrEP, which is a pill a day that you take. And so recognizing that there are multiple ways in 2020 that people can protect themselves. Mm -hmm. But in the early 2000s, you're talking about a young gay kid who was looking at porn, learning how to be a top. Or learning how to be a bottom, and not seeing the bottom squeeze up or tighten up, I was like, "This hurts a little bit to right. me." What do I? What do I? What type of lube do I supposed yeah. to use? Water based or silicone? What? What is? What is? What is best for me? And so, a lot of that for us has been trial and error, where we've had to educate ourselves. And let's not talk about the stigma of telling our peers that we are living with HIV. And so when we talk about language, you know, to, to say someone is HIV positive opposed to living with HIV, it speaks to the whole person. It speaks to the totality of the person. We often don't say someone is diabetes positive or right. one is cancer positive, they're living with cancer. They are living with HIV, and so it speaks to their resilience. It, it speaks to them thriving. Uh, the difference, we often say in the community that they have full-blown AIDS. That is not possible mm. uh, because there's no half AIDS. Sure. You know what I mean? And so uh, either the person has HIV or has AIDS. And so uh, HIV can be diagnosed through a test, through an oral swab, or through a blood test, but a, a a provider, a medical provider, has to diagnose someone with AIDS. And so, AIDS is the progression of HIV. And so, you so we can't, you can't, you know, get tested for AIDS, quote unquote, at the club or mm-hmm. you know, sidewalk testing or festival testing. What they are testing you for is HIV it is a medical provider based on your viral load and based on your CD4 and based on any other opportunistic infections, does a medical provider diagnose someone with AIDS? And so it's it's been this, this relationship that we often see wording as HIV slash AIDS. And I think that often confuses a lot of people to say those words are interchangeable. And what I've tried to do in a format uh, is do HIV and AIDS or HIV or AIDS in my writing format and the way that I use language and community.
1: You know, uh, Anthony Fauci, the Dr. Anthony Fauci is a name everyone knows today uh, because of coronavirus. But I understand uh, he actually has a legacy in the sort of work that you do. Yes,
3: I have been familiar with Anthony Fauci, I think. Uh, So one of the larger conferences for people doing HIV work is called the the, internet. There's an international conference on AIDS, uh, and then there's a United States conference on AIDS. And so, and I I also want to reference that a lot of institutions who were started in the 80s and early 90s still use the word AIDS. Mm. And so, you know, as we talk about language justice and as we talk about change in language, we also have to recognize that a lot of historical institutions use uh, antiquated language. You know, look at the NAACP, the National Council for Negro People, you know, Mm -hmm. National Advancement for. So it's a lot of institutions that use a lot of uh, outdated language. But my first introduction to Dr. Fauci was at a conference, was at a United States conference on AIDS. uh, and He took the podium uh, and he is such a giant in our community uh, because he uh, is one of the first people uh, that put a name to it. Uh, One of the first people that stood up to the Ronald Reagan administration uh, and challenged them uh, and really went to the NIH, uh, put a name to this uh, and began to create methods of treatment and this treatment model for the community. And so uh, before the world uh, kind of knew about Anthony Fauci as it relates to COVID-19, when I saw him approach the platform at the White House, I could say I know him yeah uh, because he uh, has been a part of the salvation for so many of us who are living with hiv uh, but I, not only us living with hiv but i think he's been part of the salvation uh, to prevent uh, people from being diagnosed
1: with hiv in this country yeah there's a lot of um talk uh, you know uh, politicizing um, when it comes to what we're all living with right now you know the coronavirus we're all living with it in a way. I, I wonder if um, you're um, you're being familiar with uh, Dr. fauci, the work you do I, I wonder if it's informed, an opinion of yours when it comes to uh, coronavirus uh, prevention and, and response. I mean, all the way down to wearing that mask. Unfortunately, has has become a, a politicized thing. I mean, does your experience in HIV and AIDS uh, pr- provide you uh, a leg up, if you will, when it comes to coronavirus?
3: I think so. I think the I think COVID nineteen um, is is viewed as something that can be passed through. Um, multiple forms of, you know, there's m- much speculation through sal- saliva, through kissing, through all of those forms, which mm-hmm. was very early on in the days of HIV. People uh, did not know how one could get HIV, uh, similar to COVID. There, it is shifting every single day. You know, um, articles are saying many different things of how one uh, could get coronavirus and what does it look like once it's in your body. Right. And so, for me, me being, um, in spaces of infectious disease. Um, I was very familiar with the route that they were going, you know, using protection, which is the mask, you know, in my community, it's a condom or it's a PrEP or it is, you know, many methods that people use for protection. It is uh, having to go get tested. I got tested for COVID last week. One, I wanted to experience that uh, as a person who is in community, who is about informing people through the multiple platforms that I use, I wanted to see how the test went, how to go get the test, what, what, what systems and what structures do we have to go through to get a test. As a person that knows the healthcare system very well because of having to get into the healthcare system uh, getting I wanted to know what was it like to get a COVID test how many times do you have to call the same person over and over to get your results for a test I wanted to know that experience and so that experience going in uh, to the doctor uh, kind of I didn't I was I would, did not live with HIV in the 80s and the 90s of course but it I, I could see what those people probably went through. Mm -hmm. The, The medical provider was fully gloved. That she had a mask on, she had a hair—you know—she had her hair protected. She had multiple layers of protective gear on. Mm-hmm. That remind that that as a person living with HIV, that is often viewed as an infection or something that someone else can get. In that moment, reminded me of what people had to go through uh, when people were unsure how HIV was passed from one person to another. And so, I think this experience uh, has taught me a lot, but I also think that I came into this experience the, the, talking about the coronavirus definitely with a little bit more knowledge uh, than an average American.
1: Sure. And, uh, you know, w- when it comes to, um, you know, folks like Dr. Fauci and, and others, you know, Black uh, queer uh, men and women and and those who uh, identify uh, otherwise, you know, we, we, we've had some of those non-black allies, but, you know, it, it's it's a question that comes to me uh, every day from non-black people. Well, how can I help? How can I be an ally? So I, I'd like to throw that question to you, you know, to the non-black person asking how they can be an ally specifically to black queer people as it relates to AIDS and HIV. What, what would you tell them? I think there are multiple
3: things uh, to tell them the first thing I could uh, do to tell them is one educate yourself yeah Um, I think we often want to be allies in various spaces and various industries without spending the time to educate ourselves about that industry about that issue that we want to be an ally about and so the first thing I say educate yourself the second thing I say find something in your local community whether it is that community based organization whether it is that aid servicing organization, uh, ASO or CBO, community-based organization, uh, find ways. How can how can I volunteer? How can I uh, show up and be present? Um, how can I donate my dollars? You know, uh, to our small organizations. And so, uh, similar to the music space, we have. You all have the historical. Uh, houses that get funded or mm-hmm. institutions. Similar to HIV space, uh, the money from the government and from the CDC often go to the larger organizations that hire white people to write grants. Right. While while you have smaller grassroots organizations created by black trans women and black gay men that struggle to get the funding because they don't have the money to hire the grant writers to make their grant look like something that they're not really doing. And so Seek out a small organization that in you, that is in your community. I will preference it with a person of color, with with a black trans woman, with a black gay man. The Latinx community also needs support, and so how do we how do we show up and try to fund those initiatives that they're doing, or try to make many mini grants within your community if you have those resources. And then the the last thing that I will say: speak out when you see injustice. And so when we talk about black Black Lives Matter that also means in the health system as well. Yeah. Recognizing that uh, Black folks don't often get access to care like our counterparts. Uh, data suggests that Black gay men don't have more sex than our racial counterparts. It is about access to healthcare. It is about our geography. It is about our our social networks. And so it's not because we have more. There are other issues that impact our community. When I do training with clinics. I often say, "Who wants to come into a clinic with white walls, white doctors, and white floors?" Mm. And white coats. And white coats. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing is reflected in this institution that represents me. Where is your Black art or art that speaks to my experience? Where are the quotes by James Baldwin and Bayard Rustin? Where where are the people behind the front desk that looks like me? Where are the, the workers? Where are the Black doctors? We know they exist that look like me and that can speak to my cultural experiences is one thing to attack the disease but it's another thing to speak to my culture to to understand stigma to understand why people do the things that they do once they get to the provider and so I feel that those are the things that I can tell someone that who wants to be an ally. And then then finally, I will will also add, people often say they don't know no one with HIV, and I I will push back on that. I don't think we often make spaces comfortable for people to share their lived experience and for people to disclose to people, I am a person living with HIV. I remember early on, how painful it was to go to the doctor every three months. Uh, how painful it was uh, to take medication. Uh, one, of the, one of the very first uh, three-in-one pills was called a Tripula, and when I got diagnosed, that was the pill that I was on. And how it made you kind of uh, float mm-hmm. and, and sick during the daytime. It is support like that. Uh, that that one needs to kind of get through the process.
1: Yeah. Uh, before I give you the opportunity to uh, plug all your things and let people know how they can find you, uh, I want you to address the shirt you're wearing. And for the folks uh, only listening, it says, I am my ancestor's wildest dreams. Mm-hmm. In what way do you see yourself as your ancestor's wildest dreams? I believe Maya Angelou said,
3: I am the hope and the dream of the slave. Um, I don't know where my ancestors thought that I would be at this point, but I, I I believe that I have gone beyond what they think that I will become. And so, when I say I, that is a a black person, a black person with HIV, a black queer person, a black person of the church, the multi the multiple identities that I bring to this space. I don't. I, I look at the protests across the country and demonstrations, and I, and, I, and I called my grandmother the other day who marched in 1968 after Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis, and I asked her how that experience was, uh, and she marched. And she said, I struggled to keep up with the crowd, but I marched. And her response to me was, I want you to be safe. And I told her, you did it. Now you don't have to do it. You cheer us on. And so I believe that I am her wildest dream, that I am the wildest dream of my great-grandmother, Elizabeth Hyman. I don't know if they thought that we would go this far. I believe, yes, they knew what they were fighting for in the present moment. But to see us back in the streets again, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer said that young people, if they don't have it, you're not going to have it, and we're all going to tear it up. Mm -hmm. And so so she said that in an interview again in 1968 after Dr. King was assassinated, that if young people don't have it, you ain't going to have it and the young people going to tear it up. We are in 2020. And so I don't know if our ancestors, both black and queer, both black, both black and female, knew how far we were going to go. But I am uh, bold enough to believe That as we move in this space, we have an army of a thousand behind us fighting for us and rooting us on. And so um, when I when I wear this shirt, uh, it is a moment for me to reflect on what our ancestors fought for. Uh, And it is a moment that that dream that they had, that Dr. King had, I am the wildest dream. I've gone beyond that initial dream that they wanted.
1: Amen. Amen. How can folks uh, reach out to you, uh, uh, learn more about the work you do, and uh, contribute to the work that you're doing? Sure. Uh,
3: Marville Terry uh, on all social media platforms. Uh, We are redoing my website because I'm getting ready to launch a book around mobilizing and and protesting. Uh, And so one of the ways that uh, people can uh, donate is through Cash App. You know, Cash uh, Dollar Sign Marville Terry is one way, uh, as I, in my own way, support Black artists uh, one of which is my partner. And so adriandunn.com is another way that by him you can find me uh, because I think we move as one uh, that I try to find ways to support Black artists. And so, of course, Marvel Terry on all platforms. Uh, there's a Black Music Matters T-shirt found on my partner's website that I ask that people support. And by essence, by supporting buying that T-shirt, you're supporting me as well.
1: Marville, it's been marvelous to talk (laughs) to you. (laughs) Thanks so much for being on Triloquy.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So we're here in movement four. I have a few things. So so let me go ahead from
2: I, I might as well just come over here you know with a snack you know and just wait for you to get and and
1: I, and I left oh sorry I'm hitting the mic I, I left some things out actually but but just real quick so um it, it is pride month but um as Marvell and I explored it is important to recognize the specific intersection of being black and queer because racism exists uh, misogyny lots of things certainly though racism exists very much within the LGBT community community. So over the weekend, you know, a lot of people, Scott, have been learning about Juneteenth all of a sudden. Right. So that's one thing. Right. OK. Now, uh, this man, this conservative uh, on Twitter, his name is Chadwick Moore. He got nerve to go on there and say this. I'm sorry, blacks. And he doesn't capitalize the black as you're supposed to, first and foremost. So for those of you who don't know, black, it's a capital B. OK. He says, I'm sorry, blacks, but you already have a month. Juneteenth isn't a thing. Don't colonize our month as well. Thanks. Signed the gays. So this is I'm, and this is not what this triloquy is about. But I only bring that up to make this point, And I make this point during Pride Month, Scott. Black people who are queer deal with as much racism and misogyny and bigotry within the community as out. So every time we're talking, you know, mics off or whatever, and you tie in, um uh, the queer community into conversations of racial equity, it does not apply because within that, because everybody, everybody within the, um, the, the alphabet squad <laughs> is not, you know, doing the work that I'm doing in right. um, many, and many instances, as we've seen here um, is standing against it. So I hope that's something that um, you can really understand and wrap your mind around moving forward. You know, the next time you want to uh, lump in, the gays with you know racial equity or whatever because it's just not going to work
2: is it a capital g
1: um i don't know if it's a capital g or not but it's definitely a capital b damon okay Got it. (laughs) okay um i want to quickly um uh bring up eastman real quick shout out again to katie and delaney y'all that's y'all school (laughs) um so um they announced um you know earlier that uh in the coming year all of their concerts would feature Um, a piece of music by a a black composer. So uh, they recently had like a, a town hall sort of Zoom thing and um, the question, and and this is um, courtesy of Stephanie Matthews. Shout out to her uh, guest on Last Opus uh, for for this transcription. I did watch the video. the 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 quality is just not great to put into the opus, but um, I'm going to read it here. So the question from someone was: With many arts organizations pushing for more social consciousness in regards to production, as uh, uh, the Manhattan School of Music's artistic director of opera. Uh, oh, this was MSM, not Eastman. But shout out to uh, Katie Delady anyway. Manhattan School of Music in the in New York City. So, as Manhattan School of Music's artistic director of opera, what is your stance on resurrecting works like Lehars "The Land of Smiles," which play into racial stereotypes and portray Asians as one-dimensional caricatures? And that opera is just one example. We can talk about um, Aida. We can we can talk about Carmen. You know, uh, overly sexualizing and villainizing the woman. You know, so many examples so the director says just cut him off any other questions you know mm-hmm. and 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 that is you know that, that is a reduction of the, oh, what was that question? Oh, uh, he's trying to be political. Oh, just cut him off. You know, so here we go. We have one of these large educational institutions um, stepping forward when the time is right to verbally say, oh, we're going to include the black music. But when someone black, the person sounded black asking the question, um, brings an actual issue to you, you kind of brush it under the rug and, and put it aside. Manhattan School of Music, y'all got to do better. And this counts for for all of these institutions who are paying us lip service right now, but when it comes to the actual action, get yourself together. Say the sentence out loud. Yeah, as you said in your accidentals today. Um, yeah, go. I, I have. I have one more, um, but it looks like you have something there. I'll. I'll, let, I'll give. Well, you because a... <laughs> this feeds into it.
2: Okay, this is, uh, and, and it isn't even dragging. You know, this is just this is this is my segment where we say, brah. Get yourself together. Here's the story. Here's a story from The Times. This is over in the UK, right? Coronavirus. Swan song looms for orchestra or for orchestral music. The lead. You ready? Yeah. Leading conductors have warned that orchestral music is staring at an abyss with a danger that there will be, quote, no music written about our times for our times by our living composers.
1: This is this is coming from what um, news source? The, the Times. What is wrong with people? What is really wrong with people? Didn't we just get done talking about Valerie Coleman's seven o'clock shout? <sighs> <laughs> Didn't we just get done talking about that? I thought so. I talked about that last. you know, and, and that's one of many, you know. Say the
2: headline out loud first
1: before you press send. So what they mean was the comfortable situation of us sitting in this cozy concert hall and listening to this music written about these times is going to go away when they wasn't doing that anyway. Y'all were playing Beethoven and carrying on. Yep. Anyway, the times, get yourself together. Oh, my goodness. This is
2: I, I, I think that this just might be my, my charge in this podcast is to, <laughs> <laughs>
1: to find all these examples. Because I don't have time for the times, and y'all, mm-hmm. I'd be trying to do my own work. I mean, so so did you—OK, okay, for real. No, see, Let, let's keep I it just, trill. Did you organically come across that and were like, what in the hell? I did. I did because uh,
2: a lot of the people—
1: OK, wow. A, good lot for of the,
2: you. a lot of the people that I'm following on Twitter— Are much better at ferreting this out than I am sure and just and for me I like reading the comments you know uh like one of the comments was just one line uh, you know and he was a composer he said have you asked any of us (laughs) have you have you listened to anything new um you know go go look at, at some of the uh websites of the artists that we've had just on this podcast alone and you've you've got Plenty. And, and by the way, Garrett, uh, as of this recording, I have not received word on any orchestra planning an all-black season yet. So,
1: tick-tock, tick-tock. I mean, and think about the ring of it, the Black Lives Matter season. Somebody could really take, you know, anyway. Um, mm-hmm. All right. So, um, so my final little triloquy here. Um, again, looping us all the way back to the beginning of this opus, the uh, the words from Sister Soldier. Okay. So... I'll say, I'll I'll tell you. So, my rediscovery of that is due to I've been going down these deep YouTube uh, rabbit holes. You see, instead of reading bullshit articles like that from the Times, mm-hmm. I've been going back and uh, and hearing what the conversation, what the rhetoric was uh, back in the uh, late '80s, early '90s on some of these talk shows. Um, uh, uh, going back to see what. Uh, folks like Sister Soulja, uh, Louis Farrakhan were saying on network TV back in those days. And what can we learn from it? What can we pull from it? Uh, now, um, looking up the, uh, you know, so getting down this rabbit hole, I get into the, uh, the Phil Donahue show. So I want to ask you, do you, I'm sure you remember that being on TV, right? I do, and if I saw it, that usually meant I was homesick from school. So I'm exploring Phil Donahue. Well, I'm not exploring Phil Donahue. I'm, I'm exploring folks like Farrakhan and Sister Soldier. and I get into uh, Louis, the Honorable Louis Farrakhan's um, appearance on the Phil Donahue show, and I have to sit through this.
2: Uh-huh. So you're not thrilled then with, uh, for example, the kind of stand-up work that I'm mother effer... Uh, nigger, he used the nigger word nigger often. I, I'm asking no, you. No, I am not thrilled to see not only Eddie Murphy,
3: but
1: there are many white comedians who use the same foul language. Now listen, Scott. I'm listening. And and Louis Farrakhan came up on Triloquy before, and and we got a bit of, I got a bit of feedback from it. So, so let me say here right now that, and and I shouldn't have to. This is the problem. I should not have to tell anyone that I don't one hundred percent agree with Louis Farrakhan. I mean, for goodness sakes, as a black queer man, you know, mm-hmm. he has spoken against gay people plenty. Yeah. You know, so it's not it's not about that. But it's about pulling something from what he's saying and the rhetoric from what he's saying, and not completely trying to cancel him. And in the um in in uh in in, in the shows, you know, in the Phil Donahue uh show uh, episodes that I watch, you know, uh, folks in the audience Make the point, black people in the audience make the point that you know our leaders are ostracized. People who we choose to look up to and get knowledge from are ostracized far more than folks in the media and folks in leadership positions and and places of visibility yeah. on the white side of things. Okay, mm-hmm. so we have Phil Donahue here won't say the word motherfucker, but will say the N word, will just and 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 it's he's got it backwards, if you ask me. Because I could sit here and say the N word if I wanted to, but I'm a mixed company, so I just. <laughs> so okay, so so how does that um, apply to today? There are a lot of things happening in the world that, at the surface level, the everyday white person, the the everyday well doing good doing black person even may not see as the right thing I'm thinking about uh, some of the rioting and and some of that stuff but a part of it is cleaning up your own house as Sister Soldier said you know talking to your parents you know finding out what power you can secede that you need to be worried about Mm. before you you know want to demonize the way uh, black people choose to do things and the people we look up to so again I will repeat it again even though I I feel like I do not have to. I do not 100% agree with uh, the the work uh, and the words of Louis Farrakhan. That is not why I'm bringing this up. All I'm saying is... In my personal uh, rediscovery of some of the black rhetoric that was happening in days past, you know, Louis Farrakhan and Sister Soldier are folks uh, just two examples uh, of the people that uh, a lot of black people are looking back to. And um, and, and we deserve that autonomy. We deserve to look uh, to people who are seen as our leaders and to take something from what they um you know, think or or what they have to say. I mean, as Sister Soul just said, she felt like she never met um, a good white person and and her definition of that. A lot of people, um, a lot of black people will say the same thing. Um, Are you one of those good white people? I don't know. See you next time.